You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by HuntStand. HuntStand is the number one hunting app in the country, and at only $29.99, HuntStand offers a ton of functionality for hunters all over the country. Whether you own your own property or strictly hunt public, you can choose from over a dozen base maps, view property ownership information, 3D mapping, local weather, log your sightings and harvest, as well as use their trail cam management software, and print maps from your hunt areas. Download it today at the Apple App Store or Google Play. Hunt Stand. Upgrade your arsenal. Welcome back to another episode of the Wisconsin Sportsman Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Raley, and this is episode number three. We're now in the month of June, and turkey season is finally in the rearview mirror. I hope you had a great turkey season. I know I did. I ended up taking three toms this year and uh, actually got the chance on the next to last day of the season to double up with a buddy of mine. Uh, We started out our morning on one of his farms as it was breaking daylight, we had some turkeys gobbling off in the distance, and I started getting a bit antsy, kind of wanted to go after them. But he assured me that he knew the patterns of the turkeys on this property, and uh, they should be roosted right behind us. And sure enough, right as it's breaking daylight, uh, we start to hear some hens yelping in the trees back behind us. And so I'm getting kind of excited, but we hadn't heard any gobbles. Uh, But as we're sitting there, the first bird that flies down out of the roost and into the field 20 yards in front of us is a tom. And I hear my buddy whisper to me, it's a tom, shoot it. And so I was shocked. I did not expect a tom to fly down and land in my lap, essentially. But I shot the turkey, you know, 45 seconds after he landed on the ground, had a a nice little quick hunt there. He had a a nice, thick 10-inch beard, 1-inch spurs. So just a great turkey to end the season with. Um, we sat there for a while longer though nothing else came out and so we decided to try to go reap a bird in one of the farms that I had permission on went and drove around and looked at some fields and the first two we came up empty didn't see anything finally got to the third field that I have or for third uh, farm that I have permission on and uh, sure enough way back about 650 yards off the road we see a big tom and 
at first we're kind of like, oh gosh, 650 yards, like that's a long way to go. But um, anyway, we decided to go after him. And so uh, using the terrain, we kind of got in real tight on this turkey, maybe about 200 yards. And then my buddy got down, crouched down behind his uh, Reaper decoy that he calls the Turkinator and um, snuck out there. And after some coaxing, this bird came in full strut and my buddy got a shot maybe five or 10 yards. It was super, super close. Uh, and as it turns out, it was actually a turkey that I had been chasing on this particular property all season long. I had seen him for the first time way back in March, strutting out in this field. And it may sound silly to be targeting a specific turkey, but this turkey was really, really distinct. He was missing two feathers out of his tail fan, and so every time he strutted, you knew it was him. And uh, he was the boss of this area. He was running off other toms, he was breeding all the hens, and uh, he wasn't responding to any calls all season long. He'd gobble at you on the roost a little bit. He'd fly down and go the other direction over to a farm that I didn't have permission on. On this particular day, though, we caught him on this farm, and he came in just right. The turkinator was more than he could handle and uh, couldn't be happier to close the season. Uh, getting a double with my buddy, getting a bird right off the roost that morning, and then also uh, getting one with, with the turkinator. Uh, and then it was this turkey that I'd been chasing all season to boot. Uh, and then to add uh, icing on the cake, I was actually able to get it on film. So it was a fantastic hunt. Got it on film. Looking forward to getting that edited and then hopefully posted to YouTube before next turkey season to get us fired up and excited for next year. I know I'm already looking forward to that. Now, I was going to talk a little bit in this episode about lessons that I learned from hunting turkeys this year. You know, this is only my second season hunting turkeys, and I learned a lot of lessons the hard way. But uh, I, I, I decided to instead take some notes down to save that for next year as a way to get us sort of honed in and sharpen our, our minds and our skills again, getting ready for next turkey season. Uh, and the reason I decided to do this was because as soon as I filled that last tag of mine, my brain shifted to two things, fishing and whitetails. I, I just immediately started thinking about, okay, maybe I can go trout fishing this afternoon. Oh, what, but wait, where do I want to hang these these trail cameras for this summer? So I'm already uh, e-scouting. I'm already planning uh, where I'm going to hunt next year. I'm already thinking about where I'm going to have my trail cameras cameras placed over the summer and uh so yeah so i decided you know what let's go ahead and shift gears so over the next couple of weeks we'll be talking fishing a little bit and then we're going to be talking a lot about whitetails we'll talk about scouting we'll talk about trail cameras and trail camera strategies we'll talk about gear got some really exciting guests um, that i'm looking forward to talking with coming up and so you won't want to miss that make sure to check back uh, to keep up with all of that and I'm also really excited about the conversation that we've got in store for you today. On today's podcast, we have none other than outdoor writer Pat Durkin. Pat Durkin is a, a longtime outdoor writer. He's written for newspapers. He's written for magazines. He was an editor for Deer and Deer Hunting. Uh, he currently writes for The Meat Eater and all sorts of other um, outlets. Chances are, if you live in the state of Wisconsin, you've heard of Pat or you've at least read something that Pat has written. It doesn't mean you agree with something that he's written, but it does mean you've probably read something that he has written. In this episode, we discuss how he got into the outdoor writing field. We talk about how he's adapted as uh, times have changed and um, people have shifted from reading newspapers to reading magazines to now reading articles about hunting online. Uh, we've talked a, a bit about CWD. We've talked a bit about 
politics and hunting and how the two mingle here a lot in the state of Wisconsin, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. And we touch on a lot of other topics too. Pat is just uh, has a ton of experience. He has a ton of knowledge of the outdoors in this great state. And I think you're really going to enjoy hearing from him today. But before we jump into that conversation, I do want to mention a couple of things. Number one, if you've enjoyed this podcast so far, make sure you're subscribed to it. Go subscribe to this podcast and subscribe to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network so you can keep up to date with us and also lots of other relevant outdoor content. Also, head over to wherever you access this podcast and leave us a review. That really helps us out. Uh, One, it shows other people that, hey, there are actually folks that like this podcast. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. I don't know. But maybe you do. That'd be great. And it, it lets us know what you genuinely think about this podcast and how we can improve and make this a better resource for Wisconsin outdoorsmen, right? Uh, that's our goal. We want to answer questions that you're asking. We want to provide a helpful resource and a helpful tool for you as a Wisconsin sportsman. So we want to make sure that we're hitting the mark and that we're not wasting our time doing this. So, uh, yeah, head over, leave us a review. You can also connect with us on Instagram. Be sure to follow us there. You can keep up with our daily adventures. You can drop us a line. Let us know about topics you'd like to hear about. Uh, let us know about guests you'd like to hear from. Uh, You let us know what you want to hear, and we will do our best to make it happen. We want to provide uh, useful content for you, and we want to make sure that this is a a good and helpful resource. So with all of that said, let's dive in now to our conversation with Pat Durkin. On the line with me now is Mr. Patrick Durkin. Pat, how are you doing today? Very good, Josh. Thanks for having me. Hey, thank you for being on uh, the podcast today. Uh, when I first decided to pull the trigger to do a Wisconsin podcast, uh, you were one of the first names that came to actually, you're the first name that came to mind. I thought of other topics that I could cover, but yours was the first name that came to my mind because I thought, uh, you know, in my mind, growing up in the Deep South, uh, Pat Durkin is synonymous with Wisconsin for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my conception of the state included you in it. So I'm super grateful that you would uh, take the time to be on a, on our podcast today. Uh, if you would, for those who maybe aren't as familiar with you or your body of work, tell people a little bit about uh, who you are and what it is that you do. Sure. Um, I started as an outdoor writer back in about 1982. My first piece I ever wrote about in Wisconsin, I was, I was going to school in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, on the University of Wisconsin at Oshkosh. They, had a, they have a good journalism school there. And I had I had spent five years in the Navy before that. And by the time I came out of the Navy, I kind of realized the one skill I had was um, writing. I, I um, had various people, my parents, um, different friends who wrote to me, wrote back to me during my Navy days and said I should really look into journalism when I got out of, got out of the Navy. And until that time, I really hadn't thought about writing as a career. But then um, I, I started doing it. And by the time I got, got to UW Oshkosh, I was pretty well focused that this is what I wanted to do. And so like I started working at the, the local newspaper in town, the Oshkosh Northwestern, part-time as a sports writer covering uh, high school games and um, wherever they needed me, basically. And then by the time I got out, of, got out of college on my final semester, they had an opening at the sports desk and they hired me to, to be one of the sports writers and editors. And those who know me real well know that was kind of, a, kind of, kind of funny. They thought it was kind of humorous that they would hire me to cover sports because 
other than the Packers, Green Bay Packers, I really didn't have much of a sports interest. I, I wasn't much of an athlete. I could play baseball and catch the ball and that kind of thing, but I wasn't a bad hitter. As far as real knowledge of sports and um, the real, I'd say, background information on sports, I, I didn't, I didn't have that background. So, I, but, but one thing I knew though, because I, I was, I think, observant, was I realized by looking around the state at different newspapers that almost every, I think, every, every outdoor writer at newspapers in those days reported to a sports editor. The sports editors always controlled the outdoor page. So I realized that, well, I might not be a great um, sports fan, but I, I do know how to get into, into the, um, the outdoor page, and that's through the sports editor. So that's mm-hmm. how I, why I kind of focused that way. But then after two years covering sports, um, I had enough interest in other things where they gave me the chance to move over and cover the um, Oshkosh school board and report on the school board for a couple of years. But they, I kind of had this understanding with that, with my bosses that I, I would also keep covering the outdoors. So about 1984, I started, I kind of, um, kind of worked my way in and, and got control of the outdoor page. I was in charge of, you know, doing the outdoor page each, each weekend. And so, you know, you, newspapers uh, in, in those days, you know, they had small staffs, but they also had enough flexibility where they, if someone had a special interest like that, they would let them um, uh, give them that, give them that uh, control to do something on a regular basis. So that's how I kind of got into outdoor writing and, and coverage of the outdoors in Wisconsin. Then about 1990, by the end of 1990, um, I had an opportunity to go work for Deer and Deer Hunting Magazine as, a, as the editor. And it was a tough decision because, you know, back in 1998, we had no idea, I had no idea that newspapers were fading, um, that the print meetings were starting to fade. And, but I, um, but I thought, I, I thought that'd be an interesting opportunity to, to move into a different medium and, and see how I work out there. So then I spent 10 years at Deer and Deer Hunting Magazine. And one of the things I, I look back on now and find interesting, Josh, is I didn't realize that at the time. But um, as I was working in the 1980s in newspapers, 1990s in, in uh, magazines, I was writing this um, descending wave without realizing it, that, mm-hmm. that newspapers hit, had hit their peak and were uh, kind of rolling in the shore. And then I got in the, in the uh, magazines and then didn't realize that magazines were now the next one to go, that um, by the time the end of the 1990s came, the internet would be there and things start shifting. And you still, by the late 1990s, you still wondered how the how the internet and how the electronic media would ever, ever survive and make money. And so I think people like me in the print industry were kind of skeptical that there'd be ever a future there for um, employment in that area. But you know, here we are 21 years later and almost everything's gone electronically. Um, everything's online basically. And I still make money in the print arena and I still love it, but I, but I still think if you don't have, I guess the the thing I've learned along the way is that if you do a good job in the, in a, as a writer, as a reporter, as an editor, you'll always find work and it might be Mm -hmm. different mediums and the medium might might change. But if the, the basic principles of good reporting, good writing, good tight writing, and as, as um, you and I can talk about all day, um, the nuance, the background stories that people want, that people really are interested in, 
if you can provide that, um, you typically can keep working. You can keep finding work. And so that's kind of how I've done this over the years. Uh, I've always realized as a freelancer the last 20 some years that you can't rest on your laurels. You got to be, be flexible and adapt and keep, um, keep moving along and keep holding yourself to a high standard, holding your work to a high standard and then working a lot. I mean, I, um, I've been, when my daughters are still around, they're, they're all in their early thirties now, mid thirties, but when they're in high school, um, bo- the boys in their classes would often ask them if they could job shadow me for, for, a, for a day. I remember my youngest daughter, Carson, when she, when some guy asked her about asking me to, if I, if he, did, he could job shadow me, she, her response was, why in the world you'd want a job shadow my dad? <laughs> he sits in the basement all day and stares at his computer. <laughs> And, oh, and from awesome. her perspective, that's what I did. I set up my computer all day because, you know, that's where, where I did all my writing. And, and, um, and more recently, as the internet got more powerful and, and so, so good with Google searches, you know, by, by mid-2004 in that era, I remember all of a sudden you could start really going online doing really good searches for information that but um, it wasn't just um, pulling a bunch of useless information that you had to kind of sift through. Now you could really, I got better and better at targeting how to get that information. And then still, the other thing I'll, I'll say is the other thing I, I still value through all that, though, if you can't get on the phone and call people, you're going to be missing out on the human element. Um, mm-hmm. And one thing that you can do on a phone that you can't do by just Google searches is you can't realize when you're not quite on the mark for a, for a good story lead. I can't tell you how many times I've been interviewing someone and they'll say, you know, that that's an interesting aspect you're, you're, you're um, asking about there. But, you know, the real, the real nuts and bolts of this topic is this. And they'll, they'll suggest something else to me. And I'll go, you know, I never thought of that. And I wouldn't have thought of it on my own. But when you get talking to people, um, that human element is so important in keep in getting us on to good stories that other people will find find more interesting than maybe the original idea you had. Yeah. So that's kind of my background, just trying to survive, you know, and adapt as you go along. Yeah. Well, I know I've personally been reading uh, your stuff since I was in in high school. So that would have been the early early 2000s, I guess, as I okay. began to find some of this stuff online. Uh, yeah. And you've obviously done a really good job of being adaptable. I mean, your stuff's in print, your stuff's online. Uh, what what did you do to keep yourself sort of um, ahead of the curve just enough, right, to, uh-huh. to, 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 to stay out there and to stay yeah. working? Um, I guess in a word, the whole, <laughs> or in a few words, the whole thing is if you, if you aren't adapting, you're going to be out of this business, mm-hmm. you know? And so I think, um, like it's when people ask me about writer's block, you know, what do you do about writer's block? And the thing I tell everyone is, well, you know, you will be amazed what you can do when there's a gun to your head and you got, and you got to produce. And, and in this case, it's not a gun with a bullet, but it's a gun with basically your livelihood and mm-hmm. your income. And if someone's not um, willing to pay you to write, um, I won't be here. And if I don't adapt to that reality, I'll be out of, I'll be out of work in no time. And so like I, I try to I really tried to keep an open mind about um writing for things but the other thing too that, that I I stress to people is that um don't give your writing away. I mean mm-hmm. right it, it's the one thing you can do and if you give it, give it away well then it, it loses value, loses its value. And so I I um 
first question I always ask people when they ask me about writing for them is I always ask them for their rates. You know, what do you, what do you pay? Um, what kind of word length you're looking at? And a number of times I've been asked, like when I, when I ask, ask them what their rates are, they don't know what I'm talking about. And they, they just assume that I do this for free, I guess. <laughs> and, and so I, I always have to explain that, no, this is my, this is my livelihood. And I, I, um, I have to get paid. I can't, I can't pay my bills if I'm, if I'm not getting paid. And so that's kind of where I, I look at it. It's just, it's just basically a survival mechanism that you, um, you, you have to produce. You have to keep producing and delivering it the way uh, for, in the format people want, you know, and if, if a guy's willing to pay me this amount, I, I have enough background now where I know what I can do and what I can't do, what I'm good at, what I'm not good at. And I, I, I learned that I can't reinvent myself. I'm basically a, a reporter and, and journalist. And that's, that's what I do. And I try to make that fit for them, but I know I'll never be um, a great um, video person or a great public relations person. And so I've just learned, to, I've learned to stick to my, my, my core skills and make my living that way and not, and not go too far off um, in the other areas where I really can't um, be, be strong or, or be, and be self-confident in what I'm doing. Yeah. So. Yeah. The space is changing all the more. And you brought up just, a, just with that answer there talking about uh, video, Every, everything mm -hmm. seems to be moving more toward video, more toward YouTube right. uh, and podcasts have really taken off, I guess, in the last right. eight, eight, nine years or so. Uh, yeah. Lots and lots of those um, out there. What are some of the things that um, ha have set apart uh, those people who who you see making that successful transition? Because I think we see a lot of um, a lot of old uh, standby names in the hunting industry. We've seen them weather the storm from the early mm -hmm. days of e either hunting videos or books or whatever, then moving to the online space, the blogosphere, the online articles, and now transitioning on to uh, YouTube, uh, social media, uh, even onto podcasts like this one. What are some of the things that, that you have seen that make people successful in, in trying to navigate those transitions? And then the biggest thing is still a work ethic. Um, I can I can tell you, Josh, that I'm not exaggerating when I say I often work seven days a week, and I often work. There's there's stretches where I run 12, 14 hour days pretty regularly wow. and, to get my work done. And I don't I don't hunt and fish as often as as some of the people you see out there. And but but now too, um, I think it's I think a lot of it is just recognizing your own strengths and what you are good at. But then that that work ethic though. I remember my dad would always say, there's nothing wrong with the work ethic. You know, when, when people um, looking for handouts, basically, he'd always say, there's nothing wrong with the work ethic. Hmm. And I, I still, I, I keep that in mind that I, typically the people that succeed, it, it isn't by accident. It, it isn't by um, just being in the right place at the right time. It isn't by just based on who you know. I mean, you always hear all these people saying, it's not who you know, and it's, it's not what you know, but who you know. And I think, well, to some extent, that's true. I mean, your friend or your your relative can get your foot in the door for you, but what you do once your foot's in that door is what will um, dictate where you go with it. You know, if they invite you in all the way, yeah. And because you know, no, you know, there's nothing there's nothing charitable about um, the media. Um, this is all basically performance driven. 
And that's one thing I've always liked about though. It is something that can be, it can be quantified and it can be um, um, looked at and evaluated fairly quickly if you got what it takes. And like, I know my, I don't have a good speaking voice. I don't have a, a good, um, I think I can do okay as a speaker, but when I hear a good interviewer, um, on, on podcasts and uh, on TV shows, whatever it might be, I try to recognize that as a talent and that I don't presume that I have it because mm-hmm. I think I've been around some really talented people in my life. I know I can't compete with um, someone like you or someone else that's doing these 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 podcasts or TV shows. They're doing a Q&A with their interviewer because I interview people all the time as a newspaper writer, as a magazine and, and online content writer. But I realized when I ask people questions, I start fumbling around. I don't get to the point. And eventually I, I, can, I must charm them or something because they'll, they'll tell me what I, what I need to know. <laughs> but but I'm, not, I'm not a great interviewer. Uh, but I, I just like to think that I, I establish a, a certain rapport and, and trust with people that they know I'm trying my best to get the information out there. And then one, one fortunate thing about the longer you're in this business and the more name recognition you get, and the more you go back to certain people for information and, and treat them right and and, um, and 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 really do your best to um, put their answers out there in a way that people understand and it's and you don't um, basically um, I think stab them in the back. You know they they take your phone calls and they help you when you mm. when you need your next interview. And, and they might not be able to provide that what you need, but they can tell you, well, you know, I can't really, I'm not your best person on that topic, but this person here might help you. Hmm. And so, you, you know, it's just a matter of um, sticking to it and then over time building that credibility with people. And then um, at times realizing too that you got to make sometimes phone calls to people that don't like you and they might not take your phone call, but you at least got to say, well, I tried, I, I did reach, I, I reached out to this person and they ignored me. And I, I expect that sometimes. Sure. But I think as a, as a journalist, you know, I always, I always remember a couple little, little things that come to mind over the years. And, and one that I learned a long time ago is a, a journalist's um, goal is basically to, is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Mm, and that's I good. Think that people, that's good. People in 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 public you know, positions of power should be held accountable. You know, mm-hmm. whether it's a school board president, or, um, uh, a city council person, um, a, a police captain, or a police chief, or a fire chief, or the mayor. All these people are in are in positions of of um, of, of basically of public accountability. And I was lucky because I grew up in a, I grew up in a house where our my father was a, a union president for the Madison Fire Department down in Madison, Wisconsin. So I grew up um, often having people call our house, looking to talk to him, sometimes being mad at him for various <laughs> things that involved the, the, the fire department's union. And dad was the, the president though. And, and I remember one time him telling me as a, probably like a middle, I was probably like in my mid teens, I was still living at, at our house. And him saying why, I asked him one time, about why he kept his name in the in the phone book, because in those days, you know, every every city had a phone book, and every person with a phone had their name in the phone book unless they asked for it to be unpublished. And um, Dad's answer always stuck with me. He said that 
he, he uh, he's a public employee. He, he gets paid by Madison's residents, Madison's taxpayers. So therefore he felt his name should always be in the phone book. And he thought that if you if you don't like that, if you don't like people calling your house, well then don't be in, don't be in a position where um, you need to be talking to the public a lot and representing the public a lot. And I always thought that was wow. a real, I think, bedrock value. I, I instantly recognize it as as courageous and also responsible. Yeah. That um, yeah. yeah, he 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 felt that commitment. Yeah, absolutely, and just being willing to yeah. to to keep all of that out there and to hear the good and the bad. Yeah, right? to have oh, the definitely. thick enough skin to say, you know what, people are entitled to their opinions. People are uh, you know, entitled to their ideas and, yeah. and the ways that they think, uh, yeah. even if I don't like them. <laughs> right. All right. And, and well, I can tell you, Josh, there was times he hung up the phone. I'd hear him cussing and he was not happy. He was, and he had a temper. And so I knew it really bothered him when, when these people would, he would call the house. And mm. I, I can't say I ever heard him hang, hang up anyone, but I also think too, I also think he had just enough of the, um, um, prankster in him, the jokester in him, where he liked the jousting. Mm, I think, he, yeah, I think he enjoyed it, you know, secretly. <laughs> a bit of sport for him. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of, it's kind of a, a fun thing for him to test himself with people and see if he could, you know, keep up with them. So, you know, we, we all, we all find our ways to enjoy ourselves, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, look, this is a really, um, a really competitive space that you're in, mm-hmm. that, that yeah. you're working in. Uh, there are a lot of guys out there that uh, you said something just a second ago. I don't get to hunt and fish uh, as much as, as some other guys. I, I think there are a lot of folks out there that probably look at outdoor writers or outdoor content creators in general and think that's the life. Mm-hmm. That's the life that I want. Right. What, what would you say uh, to, to somebody who came to you today and said, that's what I want to do that content creation, uh, outdoor writing, that that's, that's what I want to pursue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The comparison I make a lot when people ask me that question, I get that question quite often. Um, I always tell them, I said, have you ever seen, um, you're, we all been to a bait shop. And I said, ask that guy who runs a bait shop off and he gets to fish. Because he's so busy in that bait, bait shop just selling bait that he might hear where the fish are biting, but chances are he didn't get, get to experience it himself. Mm. That's, that's much like the outdoor writer. Um, if you're really a good outdoor writer and really staying on top of things, you have to you have to spend a lot of time behind the behind the keyboard writing it, or sharing it, or putting it in, in a video, whatever. And it's just like the um, when you watch, I've, I've been on a couple of um, TV show situations where you watch the cameraman and how they work. And those guys are relentless. I mean, they're they're mm. they're taking that same scene um, from different angles. And just real creative, you can tell they when they what they see through that viewfinder um, is something that a lot of us can look through that viewfinder just not see. Yeah, and that's where you start to re- really respect other people's talents. And so that's that's my that's my comment to, to folks is so often, if you're gonna make a living at it, you have to be willing to spend a lot of time behind the desk, a lot of time behind the camera getting that stuff down for people and sharing it and then and then getting back to your desk. And, and breaking it down into a format that um, can be shared electronically or written up, but it's not, it doesn't happen by itself. I'm not that, I'm not that good of a writer that I can just sit down and, and crank out. You know, I think one of the th- fun things I often do is I'll look at my um, weekly column 
and I'll see on my website, it says it'll, it'll peg it as a form, a four minute read. It says something like, you know, average reader will consume this material in four to five minutes to read the whole thing. And I think that, and that took me close to a full day of writing. <laughs> and before that, a, a full day of um, reporting and phone calls. And so yeah. I think, yeah, it's not, I boiled it all down to a four minute read, but man, that, that time that went into it, it takes, a, and, and some columns um, take twice that, you know, and some of the meat eater articles I write for the meat eater website. I, I wrote one last week on, on Davy Crockett mm-hmm. and how, and did he go down swinging? It's always a controversial topic among um, Alamo people and Davy Crockett uh, fans, you know, people who like us history. But I think, well, in many ways, I was, I was right. I was starting to do the research for that article when I was a kid, you know, and I, because and that one of the, one of the reasons that article, um, I always wanted to write that over the years, but I, until I got got with Meat Eater, I never had an opportunity to write it up. But I remember um, as a maybe a second or third grader, it was the first time in my life I realized that history could have different versions of the same story. And I, I had these, I, I went back on Amazon about a year ago when I first got the assignment from Meat Eater. And I, um, I found on Amazon two books I read repeatedly as a little boy about Davy Crockett. And one was written in 1941 and one was written in 1948. And their endings of how he died at the Alamo were different. Interesting. Yeah. And Interesting. then I, as, as I got to be an adult, I realized that was my, really my first reckoning that, um, there's two sides to every story. And what I realized later as a reporter, though, is that one of the little, little things I've often told people when they, when anytime someone says to me, there's two sides to every story, I always correct them. And I always tell them, no, there's as many sides as there are people in the room. Mm. Everyone views the same scene a little bit differently. Yep. And, and that, that um, Davy Crockett stuff, though, was really just the fact that I first recognized that as a, as a, as a, as a conflict, as, as something that, um, you know, different things get, get recorded differently. And then, but was it, what was interesting though, is I, I learned along the way then, as the more I read deep, more deeply into the whole Davy Crockett stories and got more, more sophisticated about it and started reading um, U.S. history by real historians, guys who did this for a living, who had their professors, you know, of U.S. history. And you realize there are basically two stories that that came out of that, but one of them really wasn't ever um, part of the story in, in much degree in, degree until Walt Disney popularized it in, in, his, in his Davy Crockett stories wow. in 1955. You know, when, when he had Davy Crockett go down swinging atop the Alamo Wall. Well, that that was um, a story I first read in 19, from a 1941 book, but I was reading this book um it's it's called davy crockett and it was i have it right here on my shelf right now um is this this book right here by frank l beals and the story beals told in that crockett in in the crockett book was basically the one that um walt disney had fess parker act out in his um tv show 14 years later now i'm not sure i have no idea of knowing if um the walt disney writers had had seen that that particular take but um it's definitely what, what frank beals wrote in 1941 wow. i thought that was you know interesting yeah interesting so the, how how pop culture can rewrite history for us oh definitely yeah 
And to this day now, we have people that um, refuse to believe that Davy Crockett could have, could have ever surrendered. <laughs> and I, and I, so I pointed out in my Meat Eater article, well, you know, the, from what we know of how he surrendered or what we think he did when he surrendered, you trying to tell me that that doesn't meet the uniform, our, 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 US, our U.S. military code of conduct for when you can surrender? It, it matches it perfectly that you wow. know you, you're basically cornered you you've you've exhausted yourself you have nothing left to give you have overwhelming odds okay now it's okay to surrender well that was what he faced i don't wow. see anything i see nothing dishonorable in that so it was, for me it was just kind of fun i guess it's just a long-winded way in saying that um some stories you you work on all your life some stories drop in your lap and you got you know uh, basically start making phone calls to develop a feel form and mm. know what the background is, you know, but it, it, it can vary. Yeah. So um, I, I, but I, but I find that one of the fun things about my job. Yeah. I think that that highlights too one of the things that I've found so interesting about your work is, is although there, there is sort of this, this outdoor realm that you're writing about, right. There's, there's incredible variety in the things that you cover. And we mentioned, you mentioned a little bit earlier before we started recording uh, about discovering the nuts and bolts, right, mm-hmm. uh, of a story and finding out what's really there. So I want to know a little bit about uh, what's going on in your mind. Uh, how how do you how do you choose the things that you write about? Are they more assigned? Are they are they ideas that come to you? Mm-hmm. How do you decide what to write on? And then what are some of your favorite uh, stories or types of things to cover? Yeah, yeah I'd say um, these days, I'm at a point in my career where most of the stuff I write about. Um, are my, my ideas. I've, I've, um, like what I'll do with meat eaters, I'll send them a bunch of my ideas. And then every couple months, my editor there, um, Spencer Newharth will get back to me and say, um, he'll go down a list and, you know, identify the ones he wants me to work on. And then it's kind of just up to me and, and follow my own curiosity. And one of, one of the things I find fun about, um, the writing process is that, a lot of times you really don't know what you think of about anything on a certain topic until you actually start trying to write it. Hmm. And then you, as you write, you start, um, questions start coming through your own head like, huh, now what about this angle here? I should verify that. And then in the process of verifying something, you stumble across more information. I've had a couple of stories in the past, you know, six months were for me either while I'll be writing something. Then about halfway through the writing, I'll realize you know, I missed the point. The, the bigger point mm. is this. I, can, I, I can't, it, it happens enough where I can't tell you a specific story about it, how it happened, but I know what, but I know what happened recently where I had to write to Spencer and say, I'm going to be a little bit late because I decided that I, I'm going to tear up the, the first um, attempt here and go at it from a different angle because I, I think this other angles is better. And luckily I, I've, um, I have enough um, street cred now as a 65-year-old writer where, where um, I think Spencer will take my word for it and, and not you know, try to talk me out of it. Yeah, so it, that, that happens. But, but to answer the question, I think a lot of it is just that um, combination of curiosity and a work ethic where um, you don't cut corners, you give it your best shot. And the one thing I always tell um, young writers um, or beginning writers is that once you agree to write something for someone, I really believe so deeply that you have to make every every time, every time your best effort, whether they're paying a hundred bucks or a thousand bucks for the article, you gotta give it the same effort. And because you know, you agreed to work for that rate, mm-hmm. whatever it might be. Yeah. 
And once you give your word that you're going to you know, do something, you can't start saying, well, he's only paying me this much for this article. So that's the kind of effort I'll give him. I said, no, once you agree, that basically becomes your, your um, obligation to give them your best work. And so that's, that's my, um, that's my inner pledge. And, and I, I won't feel, I know I won't feel good about things if I do a half, half-baked job on something. Sure. I, I really, I really do my best, but you know, it's not to say that, that I don't make mistakes. Cause I, I make plenty of mistakes. I, I, and I, I'd say on a fairly regular basis, I have to call or eat, or text message an editor and say, Hey, I, I messed up something here where I left a word out. Could you go back and fix that? And it's not, I mean, I, I don't think it's um a, a deliberate mistake or a deliberate attempt to, to mislead is typically the thing. Um, I guess I, I, I describe them as uh, a writer's um, slip of the tongue where you say you, you're thinking one thing, but saying another. And I think mm. most people know what you mean by that, by that, you know, and in writing, you do the same thing. I, I just wrote a, I just wrote a text message right before I jumped down with you where I, where I wrote to a friend of mine and, and said something about, um, I was, I used the word, um, intent, intelligent when I meant to write, um, intentional, hmm. you know, just in it, the word started coming out and I just wrote intelligent instead of intentional, but big difference in meaning. Sure. <laughs> so those, but those things happen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so one of the, uh, one of the things that you have not shied away from that, uh, doesn't make an appearance in much of outdoor writing is the politics that goes mm-hmm. on behind, um, behind the outdoors, right behind right. Uh, the decisions that state and local governments make when it comes to how do how do we manage um, how do we manage wildlife? Uh, I, I'm wondering if you could tell me about um, how you have seen politics influence wildlife management and practices in the state of Wisconsin. I, I'm from the deep South when uh-huh. I, when I fur, you know, I didn't see or hear about a lot of that. I'm sure there were things going on behind the scenes that I just simply wasn't aware of. But as I started reading your writings, I started to see behind the veil, uh, mm-hmm. I guess you could say, uh, yeah. and started to realize that there's much more going on there. So can you tell me a bit about sort of how you've seen politics influence the way we view yeah management of this tremendous resource that we have. Yeah. Um, one of the things I, I, again, I didn't really understand the whole scope of a scope of this myself when I first started outdoor writing in Wisconsin, but um, Wisconsin has a, I think I'll always describe myself as Wisconsin chauvinist because I really like Wisconsin. I enjoy its, its culture. There's certain aspects of it. I, I'm not proud of, but there's, a, but for the most part, I, I love um, the typical passion you find in Wisconsinites, whether it's for the Packers, whether it's for deer hunting, whatever it might be, we really um, hold you know things near and dear to our, ourselves. We take things personally. Yeah. We, we give a damn about things. Yeah. And one thing I, I really have come to appreciate in Wisconsin is we we had a system for many decades that really ensured we had good public involvement in our our natural resource issues, um, and it goes back to. Uh, what, what um, we often describe as the deer wars. And, and this was back in the 1930s and 1940s when, when whitetails were bouncing back after being decimated by um, market hunting and subsistence hunting back in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And also the, the fact that our Northern forest was logged off right down to um, you know just mile after mile of clear cuts. Wow. And 
you know, as that started to return and bounce back and, and, the, and deer started um, generate, regenerating themselves too, um, <clears throat> we went through some years where, where there was no deer hunting. And then when, when they came, but then um, very quickly from the, like the mid 1930s to the early 1940s, some areas had tremendous bounce backs from the deer herd that, to the point where they're now already starving in some areas in the winter mm. because they, they were so overpopulated. And in those days, there was still a huge, um, huge resistance to shooting antlerless deer in some cases. But in, and you think it's just a, a fascinating process we went through. Well, eventually, our legislature in the 1940s got really tired of dealing with um, these nonstop battles with um, deer hunters over the deer season. So they kind of came up with a, a, a solution where they allowed what, what's called our Wisconsin Conservation Congress to kind of be the conduit to the, the conservation department on the public's um, views. And then basically told uh, the, the conservation department, you guys handle this, we'll, we'll take final review. We'll take, you know, we'll, we'll give it the final review and make you modified or accept it. But um, we don't want to be, be involved in this, this, these endless mind numbing debates with deer <laughs> hunters about, you know, these, these quotas and how to manage the deer herd. So we, we kind of, um, you know, yeah, didn't, didn't cure the problem, but at least it gave it a system. And so then for many decades, we had the system where our conservation Congress would get with the DNR every year and, and set, settle on quotas and argue about it and fight about it. And we still got mad at each other, but the legislature typically did not get involved unless they really had to. But then starting around, it, it all changed with, um, this really gets into the, the nuance of um, Wisconsin natural resource policy, but um until the mid 1990s, we had a, a seven citizen board that um, this, this is a process that started probably back in the 60s when they reorganized our, um, our DNR that we have today. So it was up about like 1967, we went from a system where, where we now have a, they established a seven citizen natural resources board on, on, who are put on that board on, on six year terms by the governor. And they would determine who the DNR secretary would be, the overall person in charge of the DNR. And so you, you took as much as they could, as much as they could, they took politics out of the DNR and they allowed this independent agency to, to set policy, have public input, but still ultimately set policy based on science. And still there's an, just enough politics into it though, where we never had a perfectly scientifically driven thing, but we had about as close as you can expect in democracy for uh, independent agency. But then in 1995, um, using the state budget process, our lawmakers um, no longer have the DNR secretary being appointed by a board, but by the governor himself or herself. And so all of a sudden, all, starting in 1995, the governor appoints the DNR secretary, which now makes it a very politically charged uh, position where the DNR itself is not so independent anymore. And that still was kind of um, okay for like a decade or so. And then starting for whatever reason, about night, I'd see, and I can start putting my finger on it around 2006, 2007, we started seeing the legislature getting much more directly involved where they're actually going into the front end of these, these, um, these issues and dictating things from the start rather than at the back end. And so then by, um, oh, I think it was around 2007, you started seeing them 
um, basically intervene and, and basically tell the DNR, well, either you change this or we're going to change it for you. And so be, wow. it became much more politicized then. And then it came really politicized in 2000 after the 2010 elections. We actually saw the deer season um, being part of the governor's um, discussions when they ran for governor. Wow. And so then, you know, you had all these things like, um, oh, the, it was a, a group called uh, Sportsman for Walker, um, the, the governor who was elected from 2010 to 2018. And, and a lot of people over the years got mad at me for criticizing Governor Walker. But my, my point often was that, well, you know, the thing is, you guys, he has politicized this like no one else before, you know, where he makes it part of his platform. And so I, I pointed it out. Doesn't mean people like me for it. Doesn't mean they respect me for it. But the, I, I thought Wisconsin had a pretty good system here. We shouldn't just surrender it back and, and put it back in the legislature's power to, to control these things. And so I, I guess that was why was one of my my things I've talked about a lot over the years is that, yeah, we I, I don't I don't think we'll ever get politics totally out of our system, and I don't know if we should because it is a democracy. But, but at some point we should let the system work. And I think in recent years though, my, my comment a few times has been, has been that if the legislature now has time for this kind of stuff that they did not have in the 1940s, when we went to a system where we put more of the, the scientific management into the, um, let the DNR basically kind of lead the way and have the legislature looking at it as a referee at the end. I thought if we now have them actively participating in how things things are done from the front end that that kind of tells me these guys have too much time in their hands I mean, it's time for term limits <laughs> that's right so that's right and maybe we should have um or they're only part-time legislators they should not be full-time legislators if they have this much time in their hands there you go so, so that's been um one of my comments in more recent years that we've, we've swung too far the other way now again yep yeah and i think i think overall it's just a dangerous uh, whether it's a a conservative or liberal, whoever it is in office, mm -hmm. it's a dangerous precedent to set to say we're going to politicize uh, decisions that the DNR are, are right. going to make or decisions on a wildlife management level. Yeah. Whoever it is doing it, whether we like it as as hunters or don't right. like it as hunters, we should be concerned about the practice mm -hmm. of politicizing it. Yeah, uh, you know, across the board. Yeah, I, I call it playing playing the long game. If if you're if you play the long game, you you understand you're not going to always win. But that um, by always having a good public discourse and working toward compromises and not just um, take it or leave it all the time, like, you know, as you, I think we can all agree that right now we live in the most partisan times I've seen in my lifetime where mm -hmm. we, we um, you know, it used to be a thing where you kind of figured that um, the, 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 the little story I always tell is typically um, there was a time when you, you figure about 70% of people are in the middle and they can kind of be swayed either way. But then you have 15% out on each fringe who will never be swayed either way. Well, now I look at things today and I think, I feel like now the way our politics has gone, that we have about 48% on the fringe, 48% on the other fringe, and you have 4% right in the middle who, depending on where they feel on a certain <laughs> issue, swayed the, you know, the, the pendulum. And I think that's not a safe place to be. That leads no. to um, whipsaw all the time and, and people always being on edge and angry and just not willing to compromise. And, and that's where I think we're, we're at right now, which worries me.
Yeah. And an overall inability to have a conversation. Right. Like that's right. the most damaging part of, of all of it is we can't even, we can't even have a conversation anymore Yeah, about the facts because we can't even agree on what the facts actually are. Right. Uh, we've yeah, left, and, them, left them in the and, rear view. Yeah. Cause I think it, my, my thought, Josh, is that, that there is subject, there is objective truth that there is, there are facts that facts aren't just, um, that don't, facts don't change by um, someone's um, political beliefs. I think you no, know, there, there are, you know, we, we have, I think a pretty good ability as humans to marshal all the information we have and determine what's factual and what's, and what's, what's subjective and what's not. But a lot of stuff we're arguing about these days, you know, a lot of stuff is objective fact. Whether you choose to believe it or not, you can choose not to believe it, but it doesn't change the fact that this is a fact. <laughs> <laughs> That's well said. That's well said. Well, one of, one of the, the uh, I, think, I think, has had both a very political element and um, a uh, hunters on the ground concern element uh, is Wisconsin's response to CWD mm-hmm. over the over the years. And I yeah. was reading an article uh, that you wrote, and I can't remember exactly how you put it. Uh, it wasn't a real recent one, uh, but I think you said something along the lines of uh, Wisconsin missing the boat mm-hmm. when it comes to CWD. And it, and it got me wondering, okay, where do we go from here? And th- this was before I even lived in the state, I believe that I was, I was reading that. Mm-hmm. Um, where does the state of Wisconsin go from here with CWD and with um, all of the the tentacles, I guess, that have wrapped themselves around the conversation? Mm-hmm. Um, my, my fear right now is that, you know, we, we, we had a, we contrary to what a lot of people think Wisconsin early on um the DNR might not have handled it the best as far as the public relations front and explaining the challenges and how best to address the challenges. But, you know, the fact is that th- this situation did not get out of control until we backed off in about 2006, 2007. Wow. And again, this is where the politics got involved, where um, uh, various legislators and lawmakers basically forced the DNR to change its policy on, on controlling the disease. But if you look at um, where we were in the early 2000s with CWD, we kept the pretty low prevalence levels in that core area. It wasn't until we backed off starting around 2007 that you started to see the climb. And then um, it's not, it's still not like a, it's not like compound interest where it just will, will, you know, double and then quadruple and then, all of a sudden be blowing, blowing things out, but it's still, um, a real, you see the, um, the, the upward slope getting, getting steeper and steeper as far as, um, how that disease got more dense in the, in the core area, more, 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 more individually sick deer, um, and also, but also spreading out in, into the outlying areas. And so my worry now is that we've, we've now made it, made the task even bigger, because we let this thing get out of control where it was, it's still spreading and spreading not in a good way. Um, and basically now we're, we're seeing we're, 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 um, we're, we're probably, probably going to learn in, in the process um, where, where this disease spreads more, most rapidly. And that's probably, it probably, is, we're probably going to be able to document that. Um, my assumption is that we'll learn that we're really spread the fastest is in these real f- fertile Rich for richly um, um, rich farmlands and woodland mm-hmm. farmlands, like in Richland County, is 
the disease really took off fast in Richland Colony, a great farming area. And apparently, though, it looks like it's not moving as fast when it, when it gets into these more sandy areas, sand soil areas. And so there's still some things environmentally that, that um, dictate how, the, how that disease transmits. But I think the best thing we can still do is get targeted um, shooting, get guys in these areas, women hunters in these areas where, where, um, where the disease is still at a manageable level to keep it from spreading or doing their best to, you know, to keep it from spreading by shooting a lot of deer. And unfortunately, though, we don't, we're not, we're not really set up in a way to really target those areas that are most likely to be, be having um, the disease and, and put more pressure, focus more pressure in those areas. And we don't, we don't, I guess what, what frustrates me, we're not even really um, testing aggressively different ways to do this. We're still pretty much um, letting this disease go as, as it's planned. Mm -hmm. um, we're kind of, we're still acting like it's not really there, even though like in, in my case, where I hunt in Richland Colony, I shot two bucks last fall on my, on my cousin's uh, farm down there and both tested positive. Wow. And I thought that was my first time. I get, I've always gotten my deer tested down there, but I always know that um, in recent years, looking at the data from around there, I thought it's it's here. We just haven't found it yet. Yeah, yeah. And this More past prevalent. year, well, we found it. Yeah. Wow. And and so I'm I'm hoping that um, what I find interesting is even even within within my own hunting party, though, you see real um, difference of, of opinion on, on what we should be doing about it, and. One of my cousins, he his take is that well, ignorance is bliss. He doesn't get his deer tested where I do, and and we don't argue about it. We just kind of have our our um our stances. But I I don't think we can. I I have done a number of talks over the years and articles on. You're not going to ignore this away. This mm. is going to get worse and worse and worse. Yeah. So, Until one day we have to face it. Yeah. Yeah. Until and one then, day there's no option. By then no it may be option. too late. Yeah. And then that's, that's what worries me, Josh, is that we're quick in some areas, we're quickly getting into this, um, almost a death spiral where the, the more CWD deer you have, like where I, where I, the areas I'm hunting now, just south of us, they can basically flip a coin when a buck goes running by, whether or not it has CWD, hmm. you know, that the prevalence is, is such that the buck population, but, but if you, if you see a buck with antlers, um, especially two and a half year old antlers, it's a, it's a coin flip whether or not it's sick. Wow. And, and a lot of hunters, I'm afraid when they, when they get that situation, they'll be, be in, a, in a situation where, the, where they have to look at, at this and go, do I really want to keep hunting an area where um, I'm going to kill a deer and then have a 50-50 have chance of being sick? And do I, do I really feel like I can feed this meat to my family? Hmm. Well, personally, I can't. I, I don't think that's a... Um, a gamble I want to take with my family. Sure. Some guys might decide otherwise, but personally, I look at my grandkids and I, I'm at an age now at age 65 where I, I could probably eat CWD infected deer the rest of my life and, and die of something else first before <laughs> it takes off in my system. But I'm not going to play that game. Um, take that chance with my grandkids. Yeah. Who knows the long-term impact? Yeah. So I, 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 um, I just don't take that lightly, but then, but then the, 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 the downside of that is that I, I learned last year firsthand that, you know, you go to the trouble of bringing that deer in, skinning it, 
uh, processing it all, packaging it all, bringing it through your vacuum sealer, putting it in the freezer and then waiting for your test results. Then the test results come in about three days later. You've done all that work for nothing because it's all, uh, it's all diseased. Uh, well, then you start thinking, well, the next time what I did was I, I um, dragged the deer out. Well, I gutted it, dragged it out, took it home, skinned it. Actually, I went, went to my buddy Doug Dern's place and skinned it and, and processed it at his place. But instead of packaging it all, I just put it all in, in big Ziploc bags and dropped that in the freezer. And then when that one came back positive, I, you know, I, I have a friend with who's um, basically, um, well, he's age 75 now and won't be sharing the meat with anyone. And so he took like the back straps because he, he, he knows that he's got bigger worries health-wise hmm. being the first man documented with, with chronic wasting disease. <laughs> but he took some of the meat and, and ate it. But um, other than that, you know, I just don't feel comfortable doing that. So my, my fear is that as this happens and this starts spreading more and more to people, they're going to be making those decisions. Do I want to keep hunting or, or do I want to keep hunting in this area? And the more hunters you take out of that environment, out of that area, well, that's more deer that um, probably will, will survive and not get shot. And so you, you just end up with an even worse problem. And then before long, like I say, it's kind of a death spiral. Yeah. That's what I'm, I'm afraid of in, in some of these areas. Wow. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's certainly something that uh, has crossed my mind. I think, I think I've think i seen a deer uh, with CWD since moving to Wisconsin. It's not something you hear a lot about down in right. the, the deep south. We, we, right. I, I don't know what it is. We just don't have a lot of it. We have a lot of deer, mm-hmm. uh, but you don't hear a lot about CWD. But uh, we saw uh, not too long ago a, uh, a doe that was just – wandering aimlessly uh huh. just out and about skin and bones like yeah oh, man, what's yeah. what's going on here yeah um, but uh you, you don't want to see too many more like that it's a heartbreaking no. thing to see oh, right. Uh, right an animal going through that so right um well let's switch gears just a yeah. little bit uh i've mentioned that i'm from the deep south i'm from alabama lived for seven years in louisiana grew up hunting and fishing um did a lot of what the south had to offer thought it was great moved to Wisconsin and I had my socks knocked off with just the amount of game, the amount of places to go, the amount of fish to catch. It's Mm -hmm. it's all over the place. Um, You have traveled quite a bit. And uh, recently you made a move here in the state. You stayed in Wisconsin. I'm curious, what is it about Wisconsin that is unique to you? Why, why is Wisconsin still home for Pat Durkin? Yeah, I think, one of the things that I, I've been fortunate um, all along is that I I um I grew up in the Madison area. Um, I grew up in the, in the what was what was then the far west side of Madison, and I but I was still within a um, easy less than a mile walk out through the backyard and out across um, this little neighborhood behind me to get down to Lake Mendota. So I, so so at a young age I could walk down and go fishing, and as I started getting older and, and left the Navy and, and my friends started departing and going their own, own separate ways. One thing that struck me when I come home and, and meet, meet old friends when they, when they return home, home at the same time was um, I remember a guy, a friend of mine from, from like fifth grade on was living over in Iowa, not that far away, but you know, a little far, oh, probably about 70 miles from the Wisconsin border in the, in the Iowa. And he said the thing that he missed most from, um, from um, having grown, grown up in Mass and was was the lakes, all that access to, mm. to water. And and then in my case, um, I went off to Navy 
And when I was stationed out in Virginia, I was, I was on a ship station, stationed in Norfolk. And that's when the first time I realized that um, to go hunting on public lands, I had to drive, in my case, close to five hours. Wow. I mean, I mean, there's other areas closer by, but I also had, you know, mixing into my my thinking was that I wanted to get to some place uh, far away where I wouldn't, wouldn't have much competition during the bowl season. So, uh, but I, but I all of a sudden I realized you couldn't just um, go out and and call a buddy and who knew uh, who whose buddies buddy's dad or someone's friend in my dad's case uh, f- fellow firefighters he had this whole network of people mm-hmm. you could always contact when I was growing up to get you easy access to hunting places and easy access walking distance bicycle distance to uh, fishing places and so I started realizing as, as an adult that I'd been pretty lucky in Wisconsin growing up to have all those kind of opportunities nearby and also I in, in contrast to um, a lot of the southern states guys I knew from the southern states who had um, back backgrounds across the south, they didn't have many public lands. The guys from Texas hardly had any public property to hunt. And so I started to feel a little bit spoiled that, um, man, Wisconsin, I knew I could picture in my, in my mind's eye all these little public hunting ground signs that are still here today, these little white rectangular shaped signs you see if you know, if you have a trained eye for these things, you see those in different places. Oh yeah, and you recognize them as oh, that's a public fishing and hunting area. And then um, I and I really hadn't even explored what was up north of the, with our national forest up up in northern Wisconsin. And then and another thing that Wisconsin has is a lot of county forest. And if you start realizing how many public land opportunities we have here in Wisconsin that I'd never appreciated when I was a younger person, I, I get really kind of um, impatient with Wisconsin hunters and fishermen who complain about not having place to hunt or fish. <laughs> I think if you, it might not be convenient sometimes, it might not be right in your backyard or within a, within a 15 minute drive, but um, compared to most areas in the, in the Eastern two thirds of the country, we have lots of opportunities here. And so I, I, I've said earlier in the, in the podcast, how I consider myself this Wisconsin chauvinist because that's, because I really do, take deep pride in Wisconsin and, and the many great resources we have here and the passion of the people we have here. Um, there's things like, I look at like the Green Bay Packers and I think there's, I don't care what anyone says. There's not, there's there, it's a unique situation where you have a publicly owned franchise that will never ever happen again by their own league rules. We can't ever have, have that happen again. Hmm. And so the Wisconsin people, you shouldn't be surprised that they take, pride in the fact that the, the Packers are this publicly owned professional f- sports franchise that somehow survived in this modern era. You know, it's a, it's a great story. I mean, I would love that story if I was, wasn't a, a Wisconsin like, you know, is it, how can, I mean, as an American, you think those are the kind of stories that make America great. You know, yeah. I, I love those kind of stories. And so, I mean, I, so I, anyway, I always feel, I always feel like a little bit of a, I'm, I'm sure I drive my nut fans nuts who my, my readers nuts who um who are not Packer fans because I am I, I think it's a great story and I don't mind um talking about the fact I'm a diehard Packer fan mm. <laughs> but but I, I but on the outdoor scene though I look at what we can do in the state and I think yeah we don't have well we have some elk but they really they're they're a reestablished population they'll never be like they are out west we don't have pronghorns we don't have caribou 
but a lot of these things we used to have, and we we don't have a huntable population of moose, but we have pretty damn good deer hunting, and we have excellent fishing, and I'm I'm more of a catch and eat you know fisherman, and I occasionally fish for muskies, and I occasionally fish for some trout during the um in the cold season for, I mean with the the catch and release seasons, but I tend not to be a catch and release person. I tend to target fish I can I can take home and eat. Just um you know my my ethic. I I just feel that's what, what I find more more satisfying is is the sure. eating at the end of the trip. Yeah, I, I uh I could not believe I mean I'm I'm right here in southern Wisconsin, not too far away from Madison. And uh, I could not believe the the amount of land available all over the place. There's 300 mm-hmm. acres here, 600 acres there, a thousand acres over here. Uh, that's that's all open. Yeah. It's all open to bow hunting. It's all open. A lot of it's open to pheasant hunting. Uh, there's a lot of land that's been set aside uh, to allow access to to streams. So I, I've you know jumped off the deep end with trout fishing and have really oh, enjoyed good. that. And uh, good. yeah, so it, it's it's been great. Um, getting acclimated to a lot of this so far. And then, and then turkeys, uh, I think oh, at, yes. at the last, uh, number I saw for the state of Louisiana, which is where I lived right before moving here, there were 40,000 turkeys in the entire state of Louisiana. Yeah. Yeah. And I moved out here and I'm pretty sure I saw 40,000 turkeys last year, uh, <laughs> in, in one field, uh, yeah. <laughs> there, they seem to be everywhere, really healthy yeah. population. Um, and the hunting pressure does not seem to be overwhelming. Right. It right. doesn't seem to be overwhelming. And it, and it's still at a point where I can go up from out of town and knock on a guy's door. And he says, yeah, sure. You can hunt it. I've got some guys oh. coming in a couple of weeks, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah. 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 You know, people have been more than generous. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's yeah. been, yeah. The access for turkey hunting has always been more, more open than this for deer hunting. And, but, but, but it is interesting. I, I look at, um, I basically have hunted the same, little spot on my uncle's farm, which now is my cousin's farm since 1983. And when I look at some pictures from, you know, back then, I, I can tell that, yeah, that, you know, that forest, that woods around me has changed. Those fields around me have changed. Hmm. The other thing that's real obvious to me is that I used to be able to sit on that, that little spot and look across the different hillsides around me and see orange dots pretty regularly. I kind of knew where, where the neighbors all hunted and you could, you could see them and they're blaze orange on these, on these ridges. And nowadays when I sit there, I look around and I don't see many orange dots anywhere. So mm. I can, I can tell in my lifetime as a hunter, which go, like I say, I started hunting that farm in 1983. I can see that we do not have the hunting pressure in that area that we used to have. And, you know, like back in the nineties, it was, it was pretty intense there. I remember, um, my uncle used to sit there on opening day and count the number of shots um, that he heard <laughs> in the first two hours and compare it year to year. And nowadays it's just, you know, there's a shot here and a shot there, but it's not, not the kind of shooting that would intrigue you to start hitting your little clicker. Sure. Sure. <laughs> Cause, it, Cause it's just so it's more sporadic now. It used to sound like civil war reenactments all the time. You know, <laughs> opening day of deer season. Uh, yeah. When I was, when I was moving up actually, um, I, uh, I really enjoy bow hunting, but our rifle seasons in the South were really, really long, you know, November to the yeah. end of January or November into February, even, um, in Alabama. And so, uh, coming up here though, I was warned, beware the nine day rifle season. Yeah. Be, yeah. Be careful. If you're going out, 
be careful. Yeah. Uh, today I was told it's going to sound like World War Three. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so in some areas, I, I'm sure in some areas it still is, but still not what it was back. Um, one of the fun things I used to do, I haven't done it for a while now because it's it's not as dramatic as it used to be, but um. You know, as a communicator, as a communicator, you're always trying to find different interesting ways to look at things, hmm. things that people will find interesting. And what I used to do, um, I used to, I almost did this every year for a while. I would, when the harvest numbers would come out for deer season, I'd go back in there and calculate because you could break it down by how many deer were, deer were registered opening weekend, how many were registered in the entire entire nine day season. I used to break it down by how many deer were, were shot per second during the Wisconsin deer season. And pretty much you could, you could count on a deer being shot every second if you wow. go out over, over the course of the nine day season. And then some, wow. in some years it would be like a, a deer being shot every um, um, 0.75 seconds, Wow! you know, and some years it was like more recent years has gotten more down uh, one deer every one and a half or two seconds, you know, but, it, but um, when you think about where I always point out to people who would always want to argue about deer numbers, which is always think is a, it's a fool's errand to discuss population estimates when it comes to wildlife. But um, I'd always point out to them, if we can shoot basically when I'm off to a deer a second in the state during the gun season, there must be a lot of deer out there, you know, <laughs> at, at least a it, sufficient number. Yeah. At least I mean, a sufficient and, number. And to do this, not just one year, but year after year after year, you know, at what point do you start thinking that there must be a lot of deer out there? Yeah. But, um, but instead though, I think a lot of times you just argue about things we'll never prove. Yeah, for sure. I, I, um, I, I've been told when I first moved here, like, Hey, you know, the deer numbers are down as I started asking around and asking folks. And, um, in the South, I was, I was good for about one encounter with a nice rack buck per year. And, and I would, you know, and, and these are what we would consider high, density populations. Sure. I mean, yeah. South Alabama, yeah. there's, there's a lot of oh, deer, the, the black belt and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And so we're, yeah. you know, one, one good quality encounter per year. And I would typically mess it up because I was young and silly and not paying attention. Sure. Uh, I, I get here to Wisconsin in my first year of, of bow hunting here. I have six encounters with wow. bucks that I would have considered good bucks. Yeah. And I think yeah. to myself, okay, if this is fewer deer than what we used to have, I'm, I would be afraid of being run out of the woods by deer before before this because right. they it it looks right. like they're everywhere to me yeah um yeah and that well that's one, one thing i've um tried to tell people at times over the years is that you know appreciate what you got here this is not this is not something that um we have uniformly across the country i mean i, I would never i would never um argue that wisconsin has it better than maybe montana or um hmm. Or parts of Wyoming, or parts of um, um, Idaho, whatever it might be. I mean, they definitely have in the more of an abundance of species than we sure. do. And but it is a different kind of hunting. But I think uh, I don't know. I I will never apologize for the fact that in Wisconsin we can we have excellent deer hunting, we have excellent bear hunting, we have so many opportunities that um, a guy like in Iowa they have they have um, deer, but they don't have the public lands that we have they have some giant bucks and the, one of the reasons they have those giant bucks is because they don't have the hunting pressure yep. we have, but you know, it's, it's lots of good things here to be proud of. And then that's why I never understand why people always, so many people want to take the, um, the negative look at it and just always act like we're being victimized here. Cause mm. I, I don't know. I think we're doing pretty good. 
Yeah. Yeah. I would have to agree with that. I would have to agree with that. So as we think through, um, you know, you, what you mentioned earlier, you talked about, I don't see as many orange dots mm-hmm. as I used to see. And you've been talking about uh, in your writings, uh, decline in hunter numbers right? before it was cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, as, oh, as the you. saying goes, before it was right. cool, you were already talking about yeah. uh, decline in hunter numbers. And so today there's a lot of talk about uh, recruiting, retaining, and mm-hmm. reactivating um, hunters, mm-hmm. um, bringing people back into the sport, bringing people into the sport uh, for the first time. And it's been talked about ad nauseum. Uh, but I think you have a pretty unique perspective on a lot of things. So I want to pick your brain in this regard. What are some of the factors that you think have contributed and are contributing to a decline in the number of orange dots that you're seeing, Mm -hmm. right? Numbers going down. Um, one thing I'll say real quickly is that, you know, like you mentioned, um, I've been writing about this for a while. I, I first remember writing about, um, the decline in hunter numbers that was coming back in 1989. I remember it was 1989 because I was still wow. working at the Oshkosh Northwestern newspaper in 89. I remember I'm um, talking to, uh, he's now deceased, uh, a wildlife manager named Steve Miller. And Steve was with, with the Wisconsin DNR. And I remember him um, telling me that, you know, they, they have people, you know, these, these agencies have demographers basically working on working on staff or they're or they're in, in consultation at universities looking at the hunt the hunting population and looking where it's going and they were they were seeing already by the late late 1980s that the um the baby boom generation that their kids were not taking up hunting at the same level same participation level as what they had done back in the 60s and 70s mm. and that when they start running those numbers out then, um, guys like Steve Miller in 1989 and it's professor Tom Heberlein, who's become a friend of mine now, but Heberlein, um, in 1991, I think it was basically predicted that within 50 years, um, hunting is going to change dramatically from what we ever experienced in the, in the early 1990s. And he even said, hunting, as we know, it will be extinct. It'll be a different way of, of going about things. And, and wow. some of his forecasts were, were um, not quite probably going to bear up, but overall the, the, the declines he forecast in 1991 have pretty much come about the way they predicted. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's something that um, we should um, just appreciate that this is some of these things are kind of cut um, kind of baked into the system. And so when it comes to what, what caused it, uh, probably the, Probably the biggest thing is, um, or a number of th- number of things come into play here, and one of them is is um, you know, kids in the 1960s and 70s were much more, um, we had more convenient access to things like hunting and fishing. I used to be able to ride my bicycle, for instance, out to the um, west of Madison, and just hop up my, off my bicycle and go hunting squirrels and rabbits, and pheasants. And once in a while, I got chased off people's property. But overall, it was just um, it, I wasn't being chased off by non-hunters. I was being chased off by guys who actively hunted their own property and said, <laughs> "Hey, um, get out of here," you know. Yeah. And so yeah. there's a different dynamic. And and as people started, um, as more non-hunters started showing up, and these cities, you know, started pushing out, um, you know, pushing out in the the rural areas and pushing out those. That, that, that interface between the cities and, and, the, and, the, and the rural areas. Well, a lot of those hunt places I used to hunt were gone by the time 
I came back from the Navy just five years later. You know, wow. all that stuff was gone. It was wow. developed. And so that that was a big change. And also at the same time as um, we're seeing more urbanization of our of our rural rural areas, um, simultaneously we're seeing more opportunities to do other things for recreation, more organized activities. When I was a kid, um, we didn't have we didn't have um, b- uh, winter basketball traveling teams and and baseball teams in the summer. We had we had recreational baseball in the summer, but it was pretty pretty low key compared to what it's can become you know in the modern era. And my parents didn't have a, a schedule of running us to everything imaginable um, for organized sports. You know, my, my, I remember um, my parents would run me out to the Blackhawk ski jumps west of Mass and for ski jumping when I was a kid. And I remember going to baseball games as a kid. But it wasn't this nonstop stuff you see now where um, every kid has some kind of activity they're involved in and it's scheduled on the weekends. And so the not only did the, did the kids have more things now scheduled, but the parents became, you know, their drivers. So, so instead of taking a kid out and hunting, they're getting them in the car and taking them to hockey practice or taking them to baseball practice. So you had a lot more organized events going on. Yeah. Plus, um, and but you think by the, by the early two thousands, I think it's hard to hard to think that in the early two thousands we thought when those little um, flip open cell phones was a miracle you know you could you could be sitting on a hilltop in western wisconsin and call and and call your wife from um the woods wow. that was that was a miracle you know that was <laughs> you just didn't envision that you know up and i mean even through the 90s you look at some of those old movies of um people on those remote phones back in the 90s and they're the size of these um walkie talkies from world war ii you know <laughs> huge monstrosities so now um I think by 2009, I had my first iPhone and I remember um, getting that iPhone and it was like, I think it was like the 3S at the time and thinking this is just mind numbing what this thing can do. <laughs> I was just, this is, uh, the, I use the F word as an effing magic. This is <laughs> incredible. I, you know, and now I look at it and I think the iPhone I have now in 2021 is still a three-year-old iPhone. I think it's like the eight, I think it's the iPhone eight. And so that's even getting old now, but I still think, you know, I can take the iPhone now and I do starting in 2012. I can take that iPhone to my elk camp in Idaho. And if I position it in, in the right location near our camp, when I get done writing my articles now, I can just walk out over there, fire up my iPhone, link it to my my laptop computer, and send my article in to anywhere in the country, basically wow. anywhere in the world. And I think that's that to me is still magic because I rem- I remember um, as recently as 2008 having to drive into town with my laptop and look search around town to find a signal. And then knocking on doors in some cases to get permission to tap into their their um, their um, internet access to send an article <laughs> in. You know, so I think all these things are changing. So I think the the more we make these things convenient for people, um, I wrote an article for Meat Eater recently about how even by the even by the year two thousand, this isn't just affecting hunting. These changes in our society. Um, the, the United States as a country, we've become, by the, by the year 2000, they were documenting that our bowling leagues were, were shrinking, our golf leagues were shrinking, um, act, um, volunteer, volunteer activities 
were shrinking. We didn't have these big um, group efforts anymore like we used to have when I was growing up. Hmm. Uh, things like the like the um, the Kiwanis, the Rotary, all these civic organizations, um, just volunteering to go out and do things like like working on political campaigns. I mean, it, w- it was common. I mean, I, I, as a kid, I remember growing up. Um, my dad would take us out on Madison um, neighborhoods and drop us off with the, the, the stack of leaflets at different intersections and then say, just stick one in every door all the way down this, this street and then, uh, then circle around down there. I'll meet you here at this spot, you know, in a half hour. And, you know, and people used to volunteer to do all that kind of stuff. Well, that's mm. all those kind of things that we engage as a society changed a lot in my lifetime. And so when I look at it in, the, in that big spectrum between the idea of increased urbanization, changes in societal commitments to doing things on their own, just you know, individually driven activities, um, that's, that's all shrunk. Mm. And so I, I, I guess I, I, I will often tell people, I wish the hunting, hunting wasn't dwindling. But when you look at it in the big picture, you can see um, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that this is kind of predictable. And actually, sociologists were predicting this 30 years ago. And now we're living in that future they predicted. Yeah. And but but there are things that um we're also learning though is that you know like this the three hours thing I think is a really cool um, programs that we've been developing and we need those programs. But you think in the past that was all self sustaining, and you'll never be able to, you'll never be able to, to um, duplicate something that's self sustaining like that. It's like one of my one of my little observations I make quite often is when you talk about how to en- social engineering. Well, you know, I remember when Madonna became popular back in the late 1980s, when, when this um, great pop singer, everyone's, all the girls started imitating how she dressed. I think, well, I don't think she had any great um, intention of getting a whole big group of people to um, start dressing like her, but it caught on. And mm-hmm. there's just only spontaneous combustion things that took off. And I think for a while, hunting, bull hunting, especially, I remember, became within within my generation of people a real big thing. Mm-hmm. And a lot of guys who had no interest in the hunting previously all of a sudden got hooked on it and, and took that into their adulthood. And I think, well, we're, pr- we're probably going to see that kind of um, that self, um, just what do you call that um, the term for organic growth like that, where it just yeah. comes spontaneous, comes about nowhere. And one thing about like the R three, we're as we've been digging into this, you start realizing that it's easier to recruit and also um, retain than it is to reactivate. Typically, yep. when people drop out of something, it's very hard to get them to re-engage. I mean, they dropped out for probably a reason, maybe not an, a conscious reason, but something happened in their life. Um, something changed where they, this wasn't something they want to do anymore or or had time for anymore. So to, to get them to reactivate that's that's proving a real challenge you know yeah. so they're they're realizing that's it's um it's easier well i think in like in grandparents for instance you can get you can get some reactivation from grandparents because they get their their grandkids involved but overall they aren't doing it on their own they aren't going back out there and and um saying hey i really miss fishing or I really miss hunting i'm gonna go back out there and start doing it again people like me never lost the interest but uh, some of the big numbers that drove the hunting boom in the hunting industry back in the eighties and nineties, that's, that's gone away now. So it's a, but I, I don't think it'll, you know, 
I could talk all day about this topic. I don't think hunting and fishing will ever disappear, but we will settle down at a certain number. And I think we'll have to live with that. Mm, yeah. um, I think we should always keep, see, I, I think I, 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 um, I'm motivated by the idea that I want to, I think these are, are very important um, aspects of human um, human development and, and human appreciation and res, natural resource conservation appreciation that we shouldn't give up easily or shouldn't let, let um, fade away. I wrote a piece for Meat Eater recently uh, for an upcoming book project they're working on where I said it matters more to me that my um, my hunting heritage, my fishing heritage gets passed passed along to my kids and grandkids. That means more to me than my 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 last name. Yeah, wow. I've already um, with ha- having three daughters, the Durkin name in my line is is, is going to go with me. You know, I'll be the last one to carry that. Um, but I but I think well, I can't do much about that. But I I sure as heck can do something about my interests and things that matter to me and, and passing that heritage along. And I think in the big picture, that's more meaningful. I, I want them to um, be able to understand that when they eat a piece of elk that came from a living animal that I, that wow. either I killed or their mom killed or something like that. You know, that, that's, that's important stuff to, to um, for, for kids to, to understand and, and, and grasp. Yeah, that's been uh, that's been huge for our kids. So, so I'm a dad. I have three three young ones, uh-huh. six six four and two, and Very they're good. in that stage right now that they just they just love the fact that they're eating an animal. Yeah, that they they saw dad bring it home. Right. They, they watch dad clean it or help dad clean it and cut it right. up, and now they're now they're getting to eat it. Yeah. And uh, yeah. that has so just just grabbed hold of them. And I you know I stumbled into that by accident. My wife's thinking, oh what are you doing with it? Don't, don't show them that or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I never would have thought about that as a, as a, that doesn't fit the traditional introduction to hunting. Right. Right. The traditional right. introduction to hunting might be take them out squirrel hunting or wait until right. they're old enough to carry a gun. But, but for them, I think that has been a very important part. I, yeah. And I, I, I really commend you for that. Cause I know I kind of fell into, fell into that accidentally too, where I would, um, I'd bring home home a deer when I was a kid. When the when I had little kids running around, my three daughters, I have I have pictures of them. In fact, I have one here around my desk somewhere, um, of me standing with two of them out in the garage, and you can't see it really too easy in the picture, but they're both holding little butter knives, <laughs> and about ready to start processing this deer. And oh, that's awesome. It's and it's and the other thing I learned. Oops, I noticed my wife come, came in the background here. Oh. Um, the other thing I, I remember from that back then was the, taking the kids fishing mm. and they'd catch these little bitty perch that were about the size of your, your index finger. And I'd be getting, getting ready to throw them back in the lake and they'd say, no, keep it. And that's when I, when I started to realize this happened enough times where, I, so I always ask people like your age who have young kids, Little kids are not in the catch and release, are they? No, no not at no, all. No, and then they they really, if you give them a choice, well, should we throw it back or should we take it home and eat it? Eat it. You know, they, they so I, I, I always, I'm not a, I'm not a um, anthropologist or whatever, but I always think there's probably something in us hardwired that um, little kids, it comes through them that this is not something you throw back. You don't, you don't catch stuff just to throw it back. You catch stuff to eat it. Yeah. I think where else would they get that from? Yeah. I, it, it tapped in, it taps into something primal. 
<laughs> I yeah. mean, something that's way deep down in them. Exactly. I, and I, I, I agree. I, like I say, I can't, I don't have the, the background educational background to know what is, is primal and what's not, but boy, it, it happens so often with little kids that there's something there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I fried up quite a few, uh, bluegill that I would have never kept had I been the one that caught them this past yeah. summer, but oh, my kids right. caught them instead. Right. And, and man, they made the tiniest little <laughs> snack yeah. for dinner, you know, even yeah. though we cooked them all up and, uh, but they loved it. Yeah, absolutely loved it. Um, so we're talking about, uh, you know, numbers, numbers declining. And, and one of the reasons that I actually started this podcast was because I got here to Wisconsin and I realized what people in Wisconsin have available to them that mm -hmm. I didn't necessarily have as available to me in the South. And also I, I have a, a passion for activating people in the outdoors in general. It's mm -hmm. important to me that hunter numbers come back up, but it's more important to me that everyone is outside doing something, yeah, enjoying right. the resources that we have. Right. Like, mm -hmm. like I am just as happy to see uh, a, a person buy their, their hunting license for the first time as I am to see, uh, a couple out walking their dog on the properties that I hunt yeah. just because it's yeah. people enjoying the resource. Right. Um, no matter, no matter how it is. So what do you think uh, is an effective path forward as we start talking about um, recruiting, mm -hmm. retaining, reactivating, not just hunters, but outdoorsmen mm -hmm. in general? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, my um, things I, I often try to do, and I, and I really make a, I make, I make a, a conscious effort to, to do this. Not is to not soft pedal stuff. I think, um, you know, earlier we talked a little bit about, um, you know, the, the idea that how much should you um, show your kids, and I think, well, you know, how much should you show anyone? And, and I, I like to think that if you handle any discussion openly, and positively, and um, frankly that most people get it. You know, I remember one of my, um, that one of the stories I'll always treasure was when my oldest daughter was going to school in Milwaukee at Marquette University. She was in the Naval ROTC at, at Marquette. And so like every now and then I'd pick her up at her dorm, like, you know, four o'clock in the morning, long before light, we run down to McKinley Park and go out on Lake Michigan salmon fishing. Mm. Well, then you catch a couple of fish, come back in. I remember one time I came back in with her. We had, I think, uh, I think we had two really nice salmon. And I remember some woman walking by. It was, we're in this park and they have a really nice facility there. We can clean your fish in this cleaning station with uh, garbage disposal, everything else, and uh, um, stainless steel tables. And you can, you know, you basically are flaying your fish, uh, cutting out your fish right there, right along a, a walking path. Wow. Uh, a cement walking path through this park. Remember this this couple comes by and the woman was asking me questions, you know, just looking through the screen while I'm inside cleaning this fish. And she says, um, did you catch that out there in the lake? And I said, yeah. And she says, she says, what, what is it? And I told her lots of King Sam and this one here is a coho. And I showed her the differences. And she was just amazed that to think that someone could go out there in that lake and catch a fish and then bring it home and eat it. And here, and, and, you know, she wasn't being squeamish. She didn't mind that all his, all his blood and guts is right there on the table in front of her. And I think most people um, understand that, that um, they might not be there when they, when they cut up a, a pig or a, or a, um, a cow, whoever it might be 
and, and they're eating a hamburger off of it. But they have some awareness that, yeah, this isn't, um, this isn't get, get here by magic. And so I thought that I was, that to me was interesting how if you just talk to folks, frankly and openly, they'll respect it. When you, when you, when you couch it though and act like you're kind of got something to hide, I, um, I think they, they, they feel like you're trying to BS them a little bit. Mm-hmm. And that's not, I don't think that's good. And then, and I think little kids too. Um, I remember one of my young, my daughters coming home. Ellie is my middle daughter. I remember Ellie coming home like in first or second grade, maybe third grade, must've been about third grade. And she'd brought home, I was sitting at my desk and she brought home in a, in a, um, a napkin inside a plastic little, little um, sandwich bag, um, the, a, a cow's eye that she had dissected in, in the, 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 the classroom that day. And she started taking those eye parts apart. From, from uh, She had them all cut and sectioned off already and flipping over and showing me, this, this is the iris, this is this. She, had, she knew all the names of these different parts of the eye that I've already forgotten. But, but I thought, I, I really, I, I always feel guilty that, that I didn't write a letter to that teacher and thank him or her for um, doing that in the classroom and making this um, just a, a, a firsthand hands-on science lesson. And I, and I always think that's how we should approach these topics. Um, not not apologize, not being apologetic, but just openly um, show them. And it's one thing that I really have always respected about, like Steve Ranella's, um Netflix TV show. Yeah, he's the yep. only. You know, I remember Josh back in the '90s. There was um, outdoor TV shows that didn't even let you say the word blood when you're when you're tracking a deer. They didn't even want you to say that you're. Um, well, look, here's some good. Um, some good blood sign here. Mm. They'd always want you to say, oh, here's some sign. They, you know, they actually coach you on that when you're, wow. if you're a guest on their show. And they'd never show um, the gutting of the deer ever, you know. And then they, I don't think they hardly ever showed a gutted deer. Wow. And but then you have, in, in contrast, now you have Ranella's show where he's not only gutting the deer and showing the the pool blood in the, in the bottom of on the, on the carcass, inside the carcass, but he'll, they all, I've seen a couple of times where Steve will dip into like the eye behind the eye of a caribou and plucks in the fat out from behind the eye and this um, passed around saying, this is, you know, if it has a texture and taste of dough. Wow. And they'll wow. actually eat raw uh, caribou fat or raw deer fat. And I was thinking that's, that is to me powerful that you can mm. show those kind of real blood and guts, you know, literally yeah. blood and guts. And it's a popular show on Netflix. And that, that gives me hope that, you know, our culture is, is not as detached as um, some want, think, it, think it is. Most people can accept this and understand this and, and respect the fact that this guy is out there hunting and, and bringing home the meat and, and setting a good example for, for all of hunters to, to follow. Yeah. And, and if our culture is, um, is detached, a lot of it may be because the hunting media has detached them. Oh, we, I agree. We, we yeah. show, we show the kill shot. Maybe mm-hmm. we show the nice cleaned up, well-positioned and which I, I think we should treat animals that we Me take too. with dignity and respect. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, but we have gone out of our way 
not to, you know, to make it look like they haven't actually been shot. They're just here napping right. in front of me right now. And then right. we're definitely not going to show you what happens after this. Uh, yeah. Whereas, whereas a lot of the new media is now, uh, and you know, I, I learned new skinning techniques for a deer yeah. from, from Ronella, you know, right. and, and, and right. watching him cut it up, process mm -hmm. an, an animal and then take it all the way to the kitchen. That's one of the things I love about meat eaters yeah. is, you know, we we're taking you all the way from a harvest to mm -hmm. your table. Yeah. And, yeah, and, and here's think, how you get there. Yeah. And to me, to me, that's the ultimate sign of respect for your audience. Yep. When you um, can just talk to them like adults. Oh, and, and, yeah. And, treat them, you know, and I think there's all this stuff, all this other stuff to me that I think people see through that real easily and, and it ends up costing us because once you lose that credibility, you're not going to get their mm. attention again. You know, they yeah. just think that you're, that you're trying, that you're, because the guy comes across it that you're ashamed of something. Mm. And I think, you know, that's one thing, one thing I, I will always be a big uh, Steve Ranella and Meat Eater fans because they treat you like an adult. And if you don't like it, well, don't watch it. Yeah. And that's always, that's always my take on a lot of stuff. Well, if you don't like my column, you don't like what I'm writing, don't read it. <laughs> <laughs> you're I'm free not, to move on <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not forcing you to read my stuff yeah i hope you'll read it and i hope you'll like it but um if not you know you're not gonna not gonna change my opinion just by yelling at me sure you know, so <laughs> yeah i it, that that answer right there that you just gave me is 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 why i wanted to get your perspective on this because and you know we, we're doing a lot of things to to recruit and retain and reactivate uh, hunters and fishermen and all sorts of things. Um, but I, I haven't necessarily heard that take on it. Let's mm -hmm. let's full exposure, yeah. you know, as, as a means of, of possibly right. recruiting someone like that, like the case of that woman that you're talking about, it, it intrigued her Yeah. rather than put her off rather than right. make her upset rather than offend her. She mm -hmm. was intrigued. Yeah. And all of a sudden yeah. thinks to herself, well, I wonder if right. I, or someone from my family could do that. Yeah. Well, and I think one 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 um aspect of the, of it that I, in my case I know was helpful was um the fact I was often taking I often had my daughter along with me. My oldest daughter is a real serious hunter and fisherman, hmm. and I think um, when people see a, a, I think I don't underestimate the power the power of women in those situations to to add to the intrigue. You know, they, you know, I don't think it, it's, um, I, don't, I don't see that as being um, manipulative. I just think it, it shows that, you know, women can hunt, women can fish. I, I, I always like to tell a story of my own upbringing is that I grew up in a home where my dad's mother lived with us. Um, and it was just something that wasn't that uncommon um, when I was a kid that, you know, if, if there was a, if one of the grandparents died or, or whatever, that sometimes the, that the grandmother or grandfather just moved in with the, one, one of the kids. And then the, the, in my case, my grandmother, she, I always say she knew more about, um, the, the, about nature and wild things my dad did. My dad knew how to hunt and fish, but he knew just enough to kind of get me going. And from that point on, by the time I was 12, he often told people, Pat's a better fisherman than I am. Pat's a better hunter than I am. <laughs> and, and then I, but what's fun for me as I got older was I, when I started as an outdoor writer and meeting real serious hunters and fishermen and the guys who really do spend a lot of time out there, I, I, I never had any problem admitting that, um, oh, so-and-so, 
he's definitely better than me. He sees these mm. things. He picks up on things out in the woods that I just don't, I'm just not aware of, you know, and, and focuses on things that he knows how to kill deer. You know, yeah. I, I always call these guys, I always said they have a predator eye. Yeah. And you talk to them. There's a certain looks in these guys have and hadn't have where I think that guy's a predator. Yep. He might not be able to tell you what it is he's picking up on. He's picking on this. He's picking up on something that, that I lack. And yeah. so, so I, I don't have any problem saying that there's um, the analogy I use a lot, Josh, is that some of these guys I've met, they're the Brett Fars and the Aaron Rodgers of the hunting world. You know, all of us can, all of us can relate to when, um, you you can, we can watch a guy like Aaron Rodgers, for example, or Tom Brady, and you watch the way they throw the football and you think that guy throws a ball 40 yards with less effort than I could ever have mustered by winding up and running and throwing it, you know, <laughs> but they can flick their wrist and basically power that football 40 yards down the field on a line. Mm. And I've, I used to see Brett Favre do that. And then I always think, God, I can't throw it 30. I couldn't throw it 30 yards in my prime with winding up and, th- and tossing it. Yeah. And I think, well, and by the same token, there's hunters and fishermen that have skills that we should appreciate, not resent, because there's so much jealousy among hunters and fishermen too about someone else who catches more, catches something bigger, and shoots something bigger, and that kind of thing. And I think, ah, you know, instead of being so resentful and jealous, why don't you just accept the fact that some guys, this is their gift. This yeah. is something they're, they're really good at, you know, yep. and, and appreciate that. Yeah, and unfortunately, that's become uh, that's become so common with the rise of social media. You know, yeah. seeing people post something online and all of a sudden they're upset about it or, you know, people want to dog somebody for what they're killing or what they're not killing. Right. It's like, right. Why let's just all have a good time. Why don't you high yeah. five the guy, tell him good yeah. job. And right. You know, yeah. let's get back out there. Yeah. And, and yeah, I, I, I wrote an article a number of years ago for deer and deer running magazine about, um, I, I think I, I found five different guys who'd all shot. I mean, one of these really world-class type whitetails hmm. And then the fallout from it, the jealousies from it that um that they that came along with it from your art of you know, from they, those guys, yeah, you know, basically t- sharing the rumors they had to deal with about well, wow. here's how I really got it, you know, and and a lot of it just comes down to this pure and simple jealousy, yeah, and, and knowing everyone, I mean, well, I must have done something illegal to get that deer, you know, and and well, yeah, that happens. I mean, we have you know, almost every week you seem like you read an article about someone who um, shot a big buck and put it on social media, a meat eater at a great article just a uh, week or so ago about it, you know, and I think, yeah, that happens. What was that? The world's dumbest poacher article. Yeah. I think it was. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that, was, that was a good one. Yeah. <laughs> that was a good one. And that happens, but I think the same token, there's lots of guys who do it the right way. Yep. And then, then they get um, people assuming the worst about them. Yep. And, and, and I, I but there's hunting and fishing. It has, it has, it, it's, I was, I think it's one of those little things I've kind of considered one of its charms that you think it's, it's not a, um, I say charm in kind of like a sarcastic way, you know, that, you know, that instead of, instead of rejoicing or, or um, saluting the guy for being a gifted hunter, we, we try to find <laughs> something else in the background. That's not quite so nice. That's right. You know? Well, because if we can expose that, then we don't have to feel quite so bad about ourselves. So, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, and see, see to me, I, I think I've, um, I really do. I really do believe that almost everyone 
has some unique gift that that they're especially good at. And some people maybe never never find it. Sure. And, and therefore they're mad when, when they see some someone with a gift that they don't have that they that they envy. And I, I, I um I'm always reminded of this idea that for some people, um, or for a lot of people, envy is the, the, the one of those real deadly sins. Mm, yeah. It really it really can be all consuming. Yep. And I don't and I try to I try, I try not to um let let that enter into my thinking. If I find myself leaning that way, I start thinking, no, you know, be thankful for what you have and maximize those strengths and you'll be better off. You know, and worry about the things you can control, the things you can work on, things you can improve on, and quit worrying so much about what other people are doing. Yeah. Yeah. And that and that is one thing that I think is consistent across the board when we look at those people who are the Brett Favre's or the Tom Brady's or, you know, the folks in the hunting world that were like, mm-hmm. wow, these guys are, are operating on a different level. The one thing that is consistent is they're not looking around and caring what other people are doing. Oh, right. Right. <laughs> they, no. they don't have time for that. They're, no, they're no. leaning into that thing right. that they are really good at. Yeah. And I think that's something we can all learn is, is find yeah. what that thing is, lean into yeah. it and yeah. uh, stop worrying about everybody else because right. you're just wasting time. Yeah. Well, one that you hear a lot in sports is, you know, um, I I guess I haven't heard as much recently, but it's probably still there. One thing that people seem to always resent about um, athletes is how much they get paid. Mm. And they're always saying, why should you get paid, you know, five million a year just to throw a football? And the thing I always tell them is, well, are you a communist? Because if you're living in the free market system, and you have a talent that's being financially rewarded. Well, if that were my son or my daughter that had that unique talent that happens to bring these really big financial rewards, I would just tell them, just don't forget your father. Keep, keep me in mind. <laughs> think, that's right. Keep on throwing. Know, this, this, is our, this is our system that we grew up in. And so I don't know how you can resent someone who has that unique talent that happens like a musician too. Some some musicians make very good money. And I think, well, why should you resent that? Just because you don't have that talent. You know, I wish I could sing. I wish I could play a guitar, but I, I can't. I'm not good at those <laughs> things. The things I'm good at, I'll never get rich at, but, but I, I understand that. I accept that. And I just figure I'll do do the best I can with what I have. And that's, that's not going to make me a rich person, but I bet you'll be happier because I'm not worrying about it. You know, I just, I can't, I, I know I, no matter how hard we try, I'll never be Aaron Rodgers. I'll never be, um, in my era, the Gordon Lightfoot, you know, the, the great musician or John Prine, someone who's really, um, or these days, Lady Gaga, I think. Oh, that woman's, <laughs> woman's uniquely talented. Can't you just accept that? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I have kept you, I think, for long enough. We're coming okay. up uh, on the, the end of our time, I do believe. But I do have one question that I, that I want to ask you. Uh, and it, it, it's, it's this. What is something? Um, th- th- so this podcast is specifically focused on Wisconsin sportsmen, right? Okay. So what, what is one thing that you would want to leave the Wisconsin outdoorsman with? So the average Joe... Uh, who maybe is tuning into this podcast, what's one thing that you want to uh, throw out there? One message you want to leave them with? First of all, I'd say really appreciate how good you have it in Wisconsin. Really mm. understand we have we have so much opportunity here in Wisconsin of a great variety that many people around this country would really envious 
for. And another thing I'd always say is don't take it for granted. It didn't get here by accident. You know, we, we have um, some great people in our, in our past that did things for the state that we're now benefiting from it. It didn't, didn't happen by accident. And they, they got involved, they stayed involved. And to me, I, I, re- I might criticize sometimes various things that happen in our political front when it comes to our Conservation Congress or our DNR, whatever it might be. But the one thing I'll always commend these people for is that, that they're involved, that they stay involved. They don't just um, throw in um, bombs from the sidelines all the time. They're, they're in there year in, year out working on these things. There's, there's guys in our Conservation Congress who have been part of the Congress for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, and they'll never be recognized for it. They might get something in their obit for it, you hope, you know, but um, there's no financial reward, but they just, but they care. And, wow. and so I, I think in our, in, in Wisconsin, we have these opportunities for public involvement that a lot of states don't have. And so I, I would, I would encourage people to get involved in those things. And then at least you'll understand when, um, when things happen and something goes awry that it, to, to, to blame the DNR um, itself and nobody else, it's the DNR is not operating in a vacuum. You know, typically yep. it's getting, yep. it's, it's often left holding the bag, but um, you know, it's, it didn't get there, but it didn't do this stuff on its own. And I don't care if it's um, you're, you're talking about um, the recent wolf hunt or deer season or, or CWD, whatever it might be. We might blame the DNR for it in the end because it's a con- convenient target. But in many cases though, it was basically carrying out um, someone else's plan mm-hmm. and then having the professionalism not to um, scream and holler about, well, you can, well, I'm not the one who's at fault. The person got blamed is this person. You never hear anyone from the, anyone from the DNR blaming someone else. No. Because they, they just can't because they are professionals. They have a code of conduct and they, and they follow it. And typically a lot of times they don't, don't ever say anything bad until after they retire then they, they no longer have those uh, professional restraints, then they will say, well, if you go back in this case, look at so-and-so, see what they did, and you run it back. So I think in my reporting, sometimes I hope folks just realize that um, I'm not giving, I'm trying my best to, to give the real perspective on what happened, mm. you know, and I hope yeah. people will, will um, appreciate that. Yeah, I think they will. Well, Pat, thank you. Uh, so much for your time. This has been great. Uh, I, I think that uh, this conversation has left folks with a lot to digest. Uh, so I appreciate you taking your time to come on. And uh, hopefully we can get you back on another time in the future, maybe even to talk about. Uh, I love the point that you made. Don't take it for granted. Things didn't get like this by accident. And I I have some ideas in the future of some podcasts that I'd like to do to sort of talk about how did we get here. So maybe I'll maybe I'll hit you up for that one as well. Sounds good, Josh. All right. Well, thanks a lot for your time, Pat. And big thanks again to Pat for coming on and joining us for this episode. I'm really looking forward to catching up with him uh, a little bit later on, maybe talking about whitetails. Uh, He hunts not too terribly far from me. And so, uh, yeah, look forward to chatting with him again. Uh, As I said earlier, if you haven't already, head over, subscribe to this podcast, follow us on Instagram, leave us a review, drop me a line, let me know uh, about some of the content that you would like to hear. Let me know about some of the guests that you would like to hear from. We'll catch you next time on the Wisconsin Sportsman Podcast. Until then, get outside and enjoy 
the plethora of opportunities that are ours as Wisconsin sportsmen.